Even today, some people think that everyone who is not a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu ought to be considered a Christian. Dr. Harry Ironside, a famous minister, famous Presbyterian minister, was traveling on a train once, and he, uh, as, a, as an act of evangelism, he was trying to witness to some of the folks on this train, and he handed a particular man a gospel tract, and that man turned and looked at Dr. Ironside and said, why did you give this to me? And Dr. Ironside replied, well, I, I thought you might be interested. And he went on to say, can I ask, are you a Christian? And the man replied rather indignantly, do I look like I'm a Chinaman? Do I look like I'm Muslim? To which Dr. Ironside said, well, no, you, you look like you're an American. And he said, well, there you go. That's your answer. Of course I'm a Christian. And I wonder if that isn't perhaps the attitude that some of us might have today. That because we are born in a so-called Christian country, that not being any other religion, by default, that must mean we're Christian. And church, I've got news for you. Just being born in a Christian country does not make you any more a Christian than if you happen to have been born in a car as you're driving to the hospital would make you a spare tire. Okay? Where you are born does not define the essence of who you are. And that is a mistake that is widely made in the world around us today. That we are all Christian by virtue of the fact that we're born in Canada, that we're growing up in a so-called Christian country. There was a time, of course, before all of this when the term Christian didn't exist. It wasn't coined yet. There was a time in which there was simply a group of people whom if you were to ask them who they were or what they were, who they are, they would have told you, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or they might have said, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Or they might have said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Or I am a brother and sister of Jesus Christ. They might have referred to them by any one of maybe a half dozen different monikers. But at the end of it all, just to be clear, they would have closed off that description of themselves by referencing the great name, the precious name of Jesus Christ. This almost certainly was what was happening in Antioch around A.D. 46, which is where our text begins this morning. Now, just to tell you a little bit about these so-called Christians, it would have been extremely unlikely that they would have given themselves that name. They, the, the term wasn't coined yet, and they had such reverence and such respect for Jesus that they would not have called themselves Christian, particularly because there were so many other descriptions that are very, very common that we see throughout the book of Acts, such as I'm a believer, or I'm a follower, or I'm a brother or sister, uh, I, I follow the way, or I'm a disciple. They would not have coined that term. And the term would not have been given to them by Jews living in Antioch. No, no, no. You see, Christos was the Greek name for Messiah or Messiah. And, of course, Jews who did not believe in Jesus Christ would have rejected the idea that he was the Messiah. So they certainly wouldn't have been the ones to coin this term and to give this term to the believers living in Antioch. No, no, this was a term that almost guaranteed was invented by the pagan unbelievers living in Antioch, and it almost certainly would have been coined as a derisive term. 
in history, we have many, many examples of this. Individuals coming up with sometimes racist, sometimes um, bigoted terms of derision in order to describe other people. Even within Christianity, we have multiple examples of this. Uh, George Fox and his followers in 1640, when he stood before a certain Justice Benet and, quote, bid him to tremble at the word of the Lord, Justice Benet responded uh, by calling Fox and his followers Quakers. That was the start of the denomination that we know of today as Quakers, individuals who believed in being so passionate in their worship that they would tremble or quake as they worshiped the name of Jesus. And of course, the term was meant to be derogatory. I'm sure you've probably are aware of the Methodists, uh, a denomination that was so named because outside observers noticed their methodical approach to holiness and decided to make fun of them for it by calling them Methodists. And of course, even within our own denomination, Baptists, we didn't start out as Baptists, we started out as the Anabaptists, that is, the rebaptizers. Of course, that was a term that was derisive, invented by Catholics in order to denigrate us because we rejected infant baptism and believed that the only valid baptism was believer's baptism by immersion. And so we were initially known as Anabaptists, but of course the Anna soon got dropped and now we're just known as Baptists. Even here within our own city, a number of years ago, there was a group of believers uh, on TRU campus that was so passionate and so zealous for the Lord that they began to be called by a certain nickname. The the name of the the church at that time was called Twelve Stones, and if you ever encountered one of these believers on campus, or if you ever knew someone who knew one of these believers on campus, you would refer to them as Twelve Stoner, as though it was like they were high on something or, or, you know, some kind of idea like that. Of course, we have a few uh, former Twelve Stoners with us today, and they are absolutely wonderful, godly people who have a passion for the Lord. Amen, church? That's right. And so, <laughs> I hear Lydia McAndrew laughing over there. <clears throat> and so, you know, even from in my own life, uh, even in my own life, I, uh, I can recall when I was still a philosophy major at the University of Texas A&M, sitting outside of a philosophy class and reading my Bible. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a fancy-looking book if you don't know what it is right off the hop. You know, it's leather-bound. And and so I'm sitting there reading this thing, and and a a classmate walked up, an unbelieving classmate walked up, and he said, Oh, what what you doing there, Clay Camp? I said, I'm just uh, reading my Bible before philosophy class. And uh, he said, Oh... So you're one of those Bible thumpers, are you? Just reading my Bible. Immediately, Bible thumper. When I first came here to uh, Canada, I was working with uh, a friend to plant the church that at that time was known as The Bridge. And uh, my, my predecessor, his name was Donnie Spivey, he and I were getting to know each other, and uh, I was very, uh, a very big stickler for trying to make sure everything was grounded in the word of God. And so playfully, teasingly, he coined a nickname for me. He called me a fundamentalist. Not at all referencing the group in the mid-20th century that you might be aware of that was rather legalistic, but he said I was fun with my Bible and I put the fun back in fundamentalism. And that was uh, how, he, how he teasingly referred to me. I was his, his little fundy, as he would say, Joshua the fundy. And I enjoyed that. That was a wonderful, a wonderful nickname. Some of you remember that. (laughs) I wonder, church. 
if we were to go out these doors and go out into the community, what nickname would we be given today? How would the world look at us and, and what would be the defining quality that would mark members and adherents of First Baptist Church? If they were to coin a nickname to describe us today, what would it be? Now, my hope and my prayer is that we would all strive in our speech and in our conduct and in our language to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that the world, as they would encounter a member of First Baptist Church, wouldn't say, oh, there's a First Baptist Christian or there's a First Baptist Church member, but they would note that there was a man who was passionate, a man or a woman who was passionate for Jesus. That's my prayer. And the question is, how do we become that kind of a people? What does it look like to become a kind of person that when the world looks at you cannot help but say, that's a Christian? We see something of that in the example given to us this morning by the church in Antioch. I want you to just turn with me to Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now notice that. They still have a very strong Jewish inclination. They're still motivated primarily to share the gospel as they're being scattered as a result of persecution. They're still motivated very strongly just to share the gospel with other individuals who are like themselves Jewish believers. But there are also Hellenists, that is, Greek-speaking Jews who are in the mix. And you're going to notice these Hellenists are not constrained by any kind of notion that they should only share their faith with fellow Jews. They're going to go out and share it with other Gentiles. And that's what the next verse says, verse 20. There were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. They spoke to the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking individuals. And they preached the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, right off the bat, that should just catch our attention. We live at a time in which the church in the West is extremely wealthy. We have lots of money, and we send out thousands of missionaries every year. From North America alone, if you count both the United States and Canada, in terms of missionaries that are sent out from North America, something like 22,000 missionaries are sent out yearly to go and spread the gospel all around the world. And that is by far one of the largest numbers of missionaries to be sent out of any other country. All kinds of strategy is employed, all kinds of planning and thinking and analysis of culture is, is undertaken in order to make sure that these missionaries, as they go out, they are the most successful missionaries that they can possibly be. And yet when we come to the, to the city of Antioch in the book of Acts, none of that mattered. There was no grand missionary strategy. There was no mission board agency back in Jerusalem that was looking at some sort of a global chart posted up on the, on the wall and thinking, okay, how do we get the gospel into Antioch? What, what do we need to do to go there with the good news of Jesus Christ? There was no missionary strategy. There was no planning. There was no coordination. It was simply God working in the hearts of ordinary people just like you who went to a city and started telling people about Jesus Christ. And that's really what I want you to notice this morning. 
one of the aspects that made these people so different from the world around them to the extent that they coined a term Christianoi to define these people, Christians, was that these were not people who were a part of any sort of awesome mission agency. They weren't coming in with some grandiose church planting strategy to build a church that would number so many hundreds of thousands by the year AD 65 or anything like that. There was no grand plan. It was simply people coming and telling others about Jesus Christ. And it says the hand of God was with them. We recognize that one aspect, perhaps the central aspect of what it would take in order to be labeled Christian by the world around us is that we would have a passion for Jesus such that we couldn't stop talking about him regardless of who we were working for, what church we went to, or what organization, mission organization otherwise, we might be a part of. It is simply a love for Christ. Do we love Jesus such that the world will notice us and make fun of us for it? Or... Are we so concerned with the world noticing us and making fun of us that we're going to be quiet about the name of Jesus? Which describes you? It says that the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It goes on then to talk about a man that is sent to help encourage this group of people. And again, this is orchestrated by God the Father. The report of this comes to the ears in the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And before I read that next sentence, let us stop and consider a question. Did he notice this group at Antioch and then say, hey, this is really great, you guys. Let's get together. Let's form a mission board here. Let's form a committee to do evangelism. Let's just structure the church. And then what I want to do is I want everybody to here start making pledges, and we're going to raise so much money, and then we're going to send these two guys around door-to-door telling people about Jesus. Because in our 21st century church, that might very well be what you and I would do. That is not what Barnabas did. He came to Antioch. It says he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And what did he do? Notice this. He exhorted them all, number one, to remain faithful to the Lord. Notice that, faithful to the Lord. Number two, with steadfast purpose. Now, I love that second expression there, steadfast purpose. Uh, in, other of your, in other of your translations, it might say with, with heartfelt devotion. The, in the Greek, it literally means hearted plan. That is a plan that you purpose to accomplish from the heart. Heart being an adjective that describes the will, the, the point where you're going to make a resolve. It has to do with, with your intentions, what you're going to do. And, of course, plan has to do with strategic thinking. And I've just told you that this whole church was established in the absence of any kind of a strategy, in the absence of any kind of an organization laying down a a roadmap, as it were. It was done in the absence of all of that. And then when Barnabas comes, his thing is, number one, be faithful. And how do you be faithful? Number two, you be faithful with a hearted purpose or a heart-devoted plan, which has to do with some sort of strategy that is rooted in the resolve of their will. But he doesn't motivate them, he doesn't exhort them to go out door-to-door to evangelism. He doesn't say, here's what I want you to do, get together, organize, form your committees. He exhorts them to continue being 
faithful and to continue doing that with a heartfelt plan to continue doing that. In other words, Barnabas' exhortation to these Christians in Antioch is, you guys just need to keep doing what you're doing. They're already going door to door, telling their neighbors, telling their loved ones, family members, whoever, about Jesus Christ. They were gathering together, obviously having a wonderful time of worship. And Barnabas' exhortation, his encouragement to them, is not to change anything, but to keep doing what they're already doing, but to do so with a plan long-term to continue doing so. He doesn't change anything. He wants them to make sure that they are equipping themselves to continue on for the long haul. That's what he does. And what is really interesting about this passage is what he does, the exhortation that he gives to them, comes from who he is. Notice the next phrase. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24. For, notice that phrase, for, the reason behind his exhortation was grounded in his character. Luke says he exhorted them to remain steadfast, to remain devoted and faithful to the Lord, to have a plan for doing that, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and faith. Those, those three things. He says he was a good man, and then what does he mean by good man? Two specific things, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, church, the reason why this exhortation is absolutely crucial for us today is that we find within Christianity there are strong overtones within our church, within every church, of impulsiveness and a desire to act impulsively rather than a consideration of how we can act faithfully. And that is really the two ideas that I want to juxtapose for you in this particular moment. Faithfulness versus impulsiveness. You'll never notice, if you consider the life of Jesus Christ, you'll never notice within him that there was ever any hint of impulsiveness. We find our Lord encountering every situation and every circumstance with a calm strength. And no matter what happens, he never panicked. He continued trusting God and believing that he was in control. Impulsiveness is really a negative trait when you consider the scriptures. And most of us, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our discipleship, we tend to grow along the lines of our temperament, along the lines of our attitude, what we're used to, and not along the lines of what God would have for us. And I've got news. Impulsiveness is one of the traits that God wants to break us of. It's a trait that is found naturally in all of us, but if you consider the person of Jesus, he always ignores it because it hinders the development in the life of a disciple. Have you ever noticed an impulsive man? It's one thing to see it in a child and even to a certain extent to indulge it in a child. I want this. I want it now. But if you were to see that in a grown man or a grown woman, I'm guessing they're probably up to their eyeballs in credit card debt. If they can't learn restraint, if they can't learn to say no to certain appetites or certain passions, then they will spend themselves on the world. They will run headlong into all kinds of heartache and misery. 
An impulsive man is a man who has too many hooks in him that the world has thrown into him, and his ability to serve the Lord is now very significantly compromised. But with a disciple, we find that those who really want to walk with the Lord learn to restrain their impulsive tendencies, and they learn to focus on Christ. And their decision-making isn't so much what would make me happy right now as much as it is how do I have long-term faithfulness to Jesus? They have to learn to put away impulsiveness and to start considering faithfulness. You notice Peter. Jesus and Peter are on the boat in the middle of a raging storm. And Jesus calls out to Peter, come out and walk on the water. It's awesome. It's miraculous. It was spur of the moment. And it happened in the spur of a moment. But long-term obedience, long faithfulness, walking with Christ. Peter did not spend a whole great deal amount of time on the water. He spent the majority, overwhelming amount of his time on hard land, in hard times, preaching to hard people. We all love those spur-of-the-moment miraculous encounters. Christ does give those to us from time to time but only so that we will continue to walk with him and trust him in the ordinary times. We have to learn faithfulness. To go through the drudgery of life as a disciple, to live an ordinary, unobserved, ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus Christ, all the while rejoicing and delighting in Christ and encouraging others to do the same is going to require something supernaturally different in us than in the average person. It's going to require a transformation. You see, we tend to think, particularly in our celebrity culture, that we have to do great things, that we have to do something famous, something noteworthy. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have to do any great thing for the Lord. But let us never make the mistake of thinking, that we don't have to be great in our character. We have to learn, as we walk with Christ, the ordinary things of discipleship, how to be holy in the mean streets of the city, how to be upright as we walk among mean people, and we have to learn how to proclaim a good news to a people who are hostile to it. We have to be extraordinary and the only way we'll be extraordinary is if we will be like Barnabas. And as you look carefully at Barnabas, and this is the key to the passage, it says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Now that is an interesting expression. If you go back and you read the book of Acts from chapter 1 all the way up here to chapter 11 to this point, you'll find that the, that Luke does not use this expression full of the Holy Spirit. He, he prefers to say filled with the Holy Spirit. In English, we don't really notice much of a difference between filled with the Holy Spirit versus full of the Holy Spirit. It kind of sounds the same to us, but in Greek, there is a significant difference. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is someone who is still striving after the Holy Spirit, still striving to be yielded to the Holy Spirit, still striving to have more of the Holy Spirit. But here in this particular, te- in this particular passage, Luke says something very interesting about Barnabas. He says he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not still chasing after filling of the Holy Spirit. Luke says regarding Barnabas, he is full of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is a wonderful literary device to describe the life of Barnabas. I mean, in all honesty, we could all say that Barnabas probably was not any different than you and me. He was a normal sinner, a normal follower after Jesus Christ, just like you and me. And probably day by day, he still was pursuing the filling of the Holy Spirit. But Luke's purpose here in using this expression is to show you something interesting. The church in Antioch were known as Christians. They were passionate about Jesus Christ. And the man who encouraged them to continue in their discipleship was described not as filled, that is still pursuing filling of the Holy Spirit, although in all truthfulness, he probably was still just like you and me pursuing that. No, no, no. Luke describes him as full of the Holy Spirit. Which then begs the question, how do we be like that? If we want to go out of here and have the world look at us and think we're crazy and make fun of us by calling us Christians, if we're going to have that transformation in our heart where we are willing to celebrate whatever pejorative nickname the world will give to us, if we're going to be more concerned with talking about Jesus than being more concerned about the world making fun of us for Jesus, the transformation that has to take place is the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Now, the moment we trust in Jesus, the moment we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we surrender in faith and repentance, and we ask Jesus to forgive us, in that moment, we are all given the Holy Spirit. And yet, just because we've been given the Holy Spirit, that is, the Spirit of God living in our hearts, does not mean that we cannot have more of that. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Go with me, Ephesians chapter 5. Flip over. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, beginning in verse 17. I want you to look at this with me. He says, Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, guess what? Newsflash. This is God's will for your life. Say, what is that? Number one, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, he says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a correlation here. To be drunk with wine to be inebriated is to lose control of your senses, to lose control of your abilities. Paul contrasts that with being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, don't get drunk with wine. Rather, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll notice in this particular verb, it's in the present tense. It's in the plural, and it's an imperative. Let me break that down for you grammatically. Number one, it is something we are called to do every day. Present tense, an ongoing, everyday struggle to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number two, it's in the plural. It's something we do together as a church family. That requires each of us doing it individually, and it also requires each of us doing it together corporately. Number three, it's in the imperative, which means it is a command, not a helpful suggestion. Now, it is a helpful suggestion, but it is commanded by God. Amen? So, don't be drunk, but be filled. That is, be continuously pursuing filling of the Holy Spirit. He makes that statement. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the text doesn't immediately tell us how that is to work, but we can infer from other passages that it requires us being familiar with the Spirit's word, and surrendering 
to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to our conscience and convicts us of sin, to obey the Spirit when he leads us in obedience to Christ. There is an imperative here, be filled, and then that imperative is followed by four participles. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and make this comment. You will notice that the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit has absolutely nothing to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You'll recall that the church at Corinth was really preoccupied with having certain gifts. They, uh, they wanted to have certain gifts. They wanted to have particularly the gift of being able to speak in tongues. They were quite consumed with that. But we'll notice as we look at that passage in 1 Corinthians that Paul tells them that the one fault of their spiritual pursuit is that they aren't pursuing love. And that makes all the difference in understanding the gifts of the Spirit versus the fruit of the Spirit. You see, the fruit of the Spirit calls for love. And as we seek to love those around us, love calls us to then pursue some sort of gift or ability with which we can bless those around us. If you're focused on the gift, you've lost sight of the one you're seeking to bless, which means you are no longer walking in love, which means you're no longer talking about the Holy Spirit. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll notice in this passage there is nowhere in sight anything to do with a gift or a particular service. He's clearly referencing the moral qualities of what a Spirit-filled believer ought to look like. He says be filled with the Spirit, and then he's going to define that. He's going he's to further clarify what that means with four participles. Look what he says. Number one, he says, be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As it says in the King James, speaking to one another. Right off the hop, a Spirit-filled person is a person that seeks fellowship with other believers. What an interesting statement. Right off the hop, we are called to speak. That is the first fruit of of the, the first thing we are called to do as spirit-filled believers. The ESV has it as addressing one another. In the parallel passage in Colossians, the apostle urges his readers to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, so it says there that they may teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. The striking thing about this that we need to notice is that we as believers are called to speak to each other, to talk to each other. Now, this is that point in time in which all the introverts among us are saying, oh, no, oh, no, I'm an introvert. I know. This is going to be awfully hard for some of you to believe, but I am too. It's a fact. The only reason I'm preaching, number one, is because God threw me backwards into this occupation. I didn't set out by design to become a preacher. The only thing that gets me up on a stage every morning to speak to you is the grace of God, which moves me to do so. When you come through the front door, many of you may not be aware of this, but I'm actually completely deaf out of one ear. And whenever you all have something wonderful to share with me, guaranteed you always go for my deaf ear. Always. And then I'm like, you know that sort of dumb grin you get when you want to be encouraging, but you have no idea what that person just said? I'm like... That's wonderful. And then sometimes what you actually shared with me was some bad news, and I'm like, good for you. And you're like, now, 
do you understand? I feel super awkward about that. And I've told you, I've told you like a million times, I'm deaf out of this ear, but none of you remembers that in those key moments. So really, this is your fault. <laughs> I'm teasing, you know. The point is, uh, in Christ, I love you and you love me. None of us are perfect. In Christ, as we seek to surrender and submit to the Spirit, no matter how introverted we might be, we're called to speak to each other, to derive joy and blessing from those relationships. So that's number one. A spirit-filled person might be an introverted person, but a spirit-filled person can't stay so introverted that they don't talk to their fellow brothers and sisters. Such a thing is not true to the scriptures. Number two, a spirit-filled person is a person who sings and makes melody. Look at this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Look at this, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The second aspect of a spirit-filled person is that the spirit-filled person is leaning on the Holy Spirit in order to praise the wonderful name of Jesus Christ to sing songs, to lift up your voice, as we sang this morning, to lift up our soul to God. And our prayer is that we would not lift up our soul to anyone else, but we would only lift it up to the Lord. A spirit-filled person is, in fact, a singing person. And again, all those individuals who are deaf out of one ear and can't hear tone and have no sense of timing are saying, oh no, pastor, you're really hitting me with this. Have any of you ever heard me sing? No, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. No, you haven't, because I am a horrible singer, and I do not stand up here on the stage with a microphone. Now, John Marlowe's sitting back there. So John was with us in the early days of the bridge when there were like five of us, and we were doing worship services together, and he probably actually has heard me sing. But we're not going to talk about that, okay? You, you, if you sit close enough to the front where I'm sitting, you will hear me as we say, making a joyful noise to the Lord. It may not... I, th- thanks a lot, Natika. Wow. Feeling the love. <laughs> I do not... I don't know tone. I don't know rhythm. I don't know anything about singing. I just know I love God and I want to lift my soul to Him. And a spirit-filled person is more concerned with lifting their heart to the Lord in worship than they are worried about what other people around them are thinking of them in the worship service. Number three, I'm pressed for time. We've got to fly. Number three, a spirit-filled person gives thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so crucial. This is so crucial. Most of us give thanks sometimes for some things, but spirit-filled believers give thanks always and for everything. There is no time at which and no circumstance for which they do not give thanks. We are preaching and gathering together this morning to hear the word of Christ a week after the federal election. And I got to ask those of you who would have rathered not to have another federal uh, another liberal government how many of you gave thanks to God regardless It's easy to talk about in church here on a Sunday morning give thanks always for everything 
But then when we start to apply it to specific situations, you and I both know that there are moments where it is extremely difficult, spiritually challenging and taxing to say, thank you, God, for this. And the caution we have from God's word is that this is an act of disbelief. Do we recognize, do we not, that God is sovereign? We do. Do we believe, as our children sang this morning from James chapter 1, that God is good and that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above? Do we believe that? If God is sovereign and God is good, then one way or another, God's purposes are being achieved in every situation, even though we may have voted differently. And I'm not here to comment on the morality of voting. I spoke at length about that last Sunday. You all know my heart on that. But regardless of how we felt led by the Lord to vote in righteousness, this government has been appointed by God for his purposes, which may be mysterious to us, but nonetheless are ultimately for his, for our good and his glory. Say amen, church. Isn't that therapeutic a week after the election? Amen. You're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I pray that it will be soon. I pray that you can rejoice. Grumbling, one of Israel's besetting sins, is so serious because it is a symptom of unbelief. And whenever we start moaning and groaning, it is proof positive that we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, last but certainly not least, The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. It's going to go on uh, in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 to talk about three types of relationships of submission. Obviously, uh, wives and husbands, children to parents, and then slaves to their masters. And we recognize those particular relationships of submission, but the passage starts off here with this particular verse. While it is the particular duty of those individuals in those passages to submit, it is the general responsibility of all Christians to be in submission to God-ordained authority. Authority, a word that we don't like, don't appreciate, and in our narcissistic, self-indulgent, impulsive society, a word which just grates on our every nerve to be in submission. But a spirit-filled believer is submitted to those around him for the glory of God and his own blessing. You want to know how Paul, how we can really say definitively that Paul was spirit-filled? Go back with me in Acts chapter 11. The text continues, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25, so, notice that, so, because there were so many people being added to the Lord, so, Barnabas goes to look for a man from Tarsus named Saul who will very soon be well-known to all of us as the Apostle Paul. Now, that is an incredibly humble and submitted act. The needs of this church outweigh the abilities of Barnabas. He is their leader. He cares for them. 
And as he cares for them, as he is seeking to love them, he is going to go get a man who eventually is going to become the center stage main attraction. Barnabas is going to fade, and yet Barnabas would be the first to tell you, just like John the Baptist speaking regarding Jesus Christ, he must increase I must decrease. Whereas you have Barnabas, a tender-hearted encourager, you have his equal in every respect, and yet his complementary piece, in no way the same, are Saul and Barnabas. Where you have Barnabas, the encourager, you have the apostle Paul with a legal mind, a very sharp and precise theology that has been fleshed out in time. And he's gone to the school of hard knocks. I mean, when Barnabas and Paul had last seen each other all the way back, in Acts chapter 9, which was about 8 to 10 years earlier, sometime around 36, 38 AD, the church in Jerusalem had sent Saul away because his life was being threatened. And of course, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since that time, since Paul and Barnabas knew each other. And now he is a well-seasoned veteran servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Commentator Richard Longnecker believes that many of the events we know from Scripture that happened to the Apostle Paul, that we have a hard time fitting into the chronology of his life and his ministry, may have happened during this time in which he was back in Tarsus. Perhaps this is the time when Paul was lashed 39 times, multiple times by the Jews. Perhaps this is uh, when his family disinherited him. And as he says in Philippians 3, he experienced the loss of all things. Perhaps this was the time in which the apostle Saul, preaching to the Jews in in the synagogues there in Tarsus, was rejected and shunned by his own countrymen. The fact is, we don't know exactly what's been happening with Saul or Paul over the last 10 years, but we know that when Barnabas was sitting there in Antioch saying, I need help, this is where he turned for it. And he went and got a man who was better trained, better educated, and every bit as tried and true in the furnace of street ministry as Barnabas was. And yet in humility, he didn't say, no, 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 I'm the pastor. I'm going to sit here and preach to this church. He went and got help because what was more important was the blessing of those people in Antioch than him having the limelight. A spirit filled person is an individual who is willing to be submitted which is another way of saying a spirit filled person is humble church are we humble are we humble are we worshiping are we willing to engage in fellowship and are we excited about the name of Jesus Christ when we go from this place Are we so impassioned for Christ, so inflamed with the Spirit, that we cannot help but talking about the name of Jesus such that when the world encounters us, they are so confronted by our Christianity that they have to coin some sort of a pejorative term to make fun of us? And are we so concerned with not being made fun of that we would rather sit on the name of Christ than face the ridicule of the world around us? I fear that is the heart of many. I pray that is not our heart here at First Baptist Church. As we look at this text this morning, I want you to think carefully. 
what would it take for someone to give you a derogatory nickname? And if you could shape or form that derogatory nickname, would you be capable of shaping it to the name of Christ? Would there be someone who would hear you talking about Jesus so much that they would derogatorily say you're a Jesus freak or a Jesus lover? If, if someone were to encounter you, would you be so passionate for the scriptures and so into the word of God that they might call you a Bible thumper or a fundy? Would you get that nickname? I'm not suggesting to any of you that as we go from here today that we should be working to antagonize our neighbors and our loved ones with the name of Jesus such that they would make a negative nickname for us. What I am telling you is that you are already a Christian and that you are already called by the name of Christ and that your focus should be on Jesus. And your passion should be so for Christ that the world could not help but notice you and probably come up with some sort of a name, a derogatory nickname to describe you. But because of the gospel, whether you like it or not, you are a Christian, for better or for worse to the glory of God. Alexander the Great, the famous Macedonian general who basically conquered the whole world, once learned that in his army there was a lowly little private who had his same namesake, Alexander. And the report came to him that this lowly little private who had his same name of Alexander was a notorious coward Alexander the Great, who conquered the world when he was just 23, called the soldier before him, and he said to him, Hey, is your name Alexander, and are you named the same name as me? And the trembling coward said, Yes, sir, my name is Alexander. I have the exact same name that you do. And the great general scratched his chin, and he said, Well, either be brave or change your name. Fortunately, brothers and sisters, Christ doesn't do that to us, although by rights he could. Instead, Jesus says, you have been cowardly, but I give you a spirit, not of fear and trembling, but of power. I give you the Holy Spirit. You don't need to change your name. You need to change the inner heart, and you can do so because he's given you the gift you need to make that happen. As we close this morning, our prayer needs to be that Christ would indeed change us from the inside out. Would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with the gift that we need in order to reflect the image of your son, Jesus, to the world. Father, we do not look to be made fun of. We do not look to be derided or to be called names, Lord. Father, let it be true of us that whatever the world might think of us, we were so passionate about you and your son that we could not stop talking about Jesus. 
that our heart's desire would be that everyone would have the opportunity to know the great name of Jesus Christ. God, change our hearts by your spirit. Make us a spirit-filled people. Transform us in order that we could live out that great calling that you have placed upon all those who are named after the Messiah, who are known as Christians. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.